I was just thinking, looking at that group of masked bandits, won't we have to wonder when that picture was taken, will we? I think we'll know the year very well. <clears throat> All right. Let's go one more time to the book of Esther. And uh, I was intending to finish this entirely last week. We didn't get there. Uh, we are, Lord willing, going to finish today. Esther 9. Well, Esther 8, I'm sorry. <clears throat> now again, backing up a little where we were, we did we stop in the middle of a lesson. <clears throat> but providentially, the Jews could take heart that God would preserve them as a nation. Let me put this thing down, make sure that I like that in my pocket. <clears throat> I guess let me ask a semi-loaded question. On that note, let me side trail as far as application. Second Chronicles 7.14, the verse you hear constantly in times like this. I've heard about every group, both sound and unsound, use it. And you, you, you probably know it. If my people, which are called by my name shall humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. And I'll hear from heaven and I will heal their land, right? Is that a wonderful promise? It is. Does that directly apply to America? What I mean is, I guess let me put it this way. Can America claim that verse and say, I guarantee you, if a lot of Americans turn towards God, God has to heal our land, and has to preserve our country. Can we claim it to that degree? How come? You're going to say something. Yes? Well, we... <clears throat> let me be careful about how I say this. We, we believe that that was specifically for the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. And you're right. That's where I'm going with it. Principally, or if we're going to take Bible principle, the principles apply. Does God bless those who turn to Him? Yes. But you're exactly right. If we're going to accurately look at the Scriptures as a whole, see, this is what happens, and we talked about this going through dispensationalism. When you throw all the Bible into a blender, mix it up, and pour it into a cup and say, here, every single phrase of this applies directly to you as though it, you were the one it was originally written to. Now, all Scripture is profitable. Yes, absolutely. But in context, we have to make proper application. Okay, In a lot of the Old Testament, there's specific promises to the Jews. So a Jew could say, a Jew could claim that and say, absolutely, if the Jews turn to God, he will utterly, there's no question he'll preserve them. He's bound by his word to do so. He, he will do it. Uh, can America have good hope God will do that? Yes. But I get bothered when I see that verse thrown out there as sort of a catch-all. And uh, quite honestly, a lot of times it's in the context of flat-out disobedience to the Scriptures. And more often than not, that's where I've seen it used. I've seen it at these large ecumenical gatherings where you have people utterly disobeying God and their associations with false teachers, with fake gospels, with total heretics, like God tells us to separate from. And here they are joining together with it in defiance of the Scriptures, quoting that verse. Well, if you're going to humble yourself and pray and seek His face, you better obey His Word, for starters. So I guess I want to start, I make that point because 
can we claim God's protection? Yes, but we have to understand we are not Israel. And uh, God has not promised to preserve America in the same way nationally. I love this country. We ought to be, we ought to be patriotic. Uh, nationalism is a biblical concept. Defending your country is a biblical concept. Uh, weapons, owning weapons is a biblical concept. Um, but we have to understand we're not the same. We're not the new Israel. We're not. So you're right. It, it, it's, uh, now again, like I said, do some of those promises of God's character apply? Absolutely. Okay, we just have to be careful uh, st stating dogmatically God's going to do for us what He promised to do for the Jew. Okay, because it's not exactly the same. Now, last time we were talking about, though, we started off with the concept of uh, celebrating God. And uh, again, let me throw that question out there. Because some of you, if you know what's going on, especially in the last four decades, you hear that term and you're thinking, what do you mean by that? Is it... Is it proper to celebrate God? Um, does it matter what I mean by that? It does. Um, and again, we have to be scripturally balanced here. Um, it's kind of like the discussion with emotion. We say, well, you can't trust your emotions. No, you can't. But does God want us to be robotic in our worship? You know, where, where we have no expression, no emotion, no nothing. No. We just have to understand Bible doctrine, truth has to trump feeling in the whole matter. That's one of the big issues in worship. By the way, I'm going to be mentioning this several times upcoming. I'm not sure how the layout's going to look, but let me just say as a side note, speaking of worship, when Tim Lewis is here, in fact, I'm thrilled he asked this because some of you heard me say I've wanted to go through the music issue in depth in a lengthy series. I've not put it together yet, uh, but I think we're going to take five or six or seven sessions and go through, and I guess let me start by asking this question. Do you have biblical reasoning for the music you listen to? Or is it just, I like it? Uh, because the biblical principles regarding music, there's a lot of them. And if the criteria is, I like it, I feel God in it. You're on very shifty sands. And a lot of American Christendom is on those shifty sands. That's why we see a lot of what we're seeing. Because feeling has replaced doctrine. And worship is largely becoming uh, subjective, uh, humanistic. Man defines it. If I, feel like, if I feel like I'm worshiping God, he must accept it. It's not true. There's biblical guidelines. And so one of the big things with music, and music is powerful, powerful stuff. It's extremely important. So I want to challenge you, be here for those. If you've not been through, and by the way, he's covering a side of it that I want to cover a different side of it later on, and maybe you'll see what I mean in that. But just going through the background of worship scripturally, what are the criteria? What are the principles that apply? How do we, how do we discern or how do we apply scriptural principles to what's going on today and actually know because a lot of the music discussion is just subjective. I feel it. I don't feel it. I like it. I don't like it. That, that's not... I don't know about you. I look at that and I think, well, that, that means nothing to me. I want to know what God wants. And the central thing in worship is what? 
It's not how I feel like I want to worship God. The central thing in worship, how does God tell me to worship Him? What does acceptable worship look like? So back to celebrating God. Are there cases in the Bible where they were celebrating God and it didn't end so well? Can you think of some? And I'm going to ask a parallel question in a minute, so you can be thinking of that. Are there times where they were celebrating God and it did go well? Can you think of some? What are some? Can you think of some examples? Yeah, David carrying the ark back to Jerusalem. And is David emotional? Is he sincere? Oh, he's fired up. But man, remember what happened? Here comes Uzzah. Oh, the ark's shaking. Better fix that. Dead. Now that'll kill the party. Remember David. David didn't like that. Music, can you imagine the music? And every, and I, seriously, everything goes silent. You've got to remember that ark was center stage. It was right there. Everybody was watching it. And boom, the guy just falls down. Okay? Why? What happened? Were they sincere? Yes. Were they skilled? Very skilled. Uh, were they making an attempt to worship? Yeah, absolutely. Were they doing some good things? Yes. All right, why did God strike us a dead? It's a kind of a complicated question, but you, you, gotta, you search the, the Levitical priesthood and you come up with some of the answers. Anybody know? They weren't supposed to touch it with their hands. Yes, there were several problems. That's one of them. The ark was supposed to be transported how? By the priests with staves carrying it. It's very plainly written in the law. But they had an innovation. Hmm. I think wheels work better. It was on an ox cart. Why have the priests get sweaty carrying the thing when we can roll it on wheels? What's the problem? What does God hate wheels? God never said not to use wheels anywhere. Secondly, Uzzah was not of the particular Levitical family that was even supposed to be transported in the ark. That was problem number two. Problem number three was what you just said. He esteemed his hand cleaner than the dirt. And uh, it's funny, scripturally, not funny, but you go through a lot of the major movements of God begin with a severe judgment. You can trace that theme. Early church, things are growing, things are going well. But a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira, his wife. Judgment. Millennial kingdom starts with judgment. Why? What did that impress on them? What one major concept? The obedience, which stems from the fear of God. So, is it proper to celebrate God? Yes, Yes, however, reverence and fear of God and obedience and subjection to His Word, if those are not part of it, it's not worship. And God doesn't like it. Same thing happened at uh, one of the classic passages that has parallels to what's going on today, Deuteronomy 32, the golden calf incident. Remember that? And, uh, I mean, what, what's going on? 
Remember, the people are saying, give us, a, make us gods. And uh, Aaron makes a disastrous choice. And here's what it is. It's better to have everybody involved in a compromise worship rather than a remnant involved in true worship. Aaron was a pragmatist. So what's wrong with a little leaven so long as everybody gets involved? Isn't it better to lower the standard so that more people come to the worship service? Sound familiar? So they make the calf. Aaron says, tomorrow's a feast unto the Lord. L-O-R-D. Yes. Why was it important that the Egyptians gave them all that gold? What were they going to do with it in the desert? Build the temple, the tabernacle. Oh, okay. Yep. Not a golden calf. You know, it was to build the tabernacle. The Lord already provided all of that. And so, with great exuberance, they rise up early. That's good. And uh, they offer burnt offerings and sin offerings. Think about that, the significance of it. Those two offerings show that our sin's forgiven and that we're in complete subjection to God. That's what they offered. So you have the people of God rising early, giving a feast to God, giving offerings to God singing to God, worshiping God, having a feast to God, and he hates it. Because it was utterly defying the criteria he gave for worship. And the excitement of the crowd meant nothing. It meant nothing. It, it's truth is what matters. Okay, So there was a celebration that didn't end so well. Unless you count 3,000 people being slaughtered as a good ending. But... What about when the ark came back the next time? Did that end well? Yes. Lo and behold, they did it exactly the way God said. There was fear. There was fear. Uh, not the, I don't mean a crippling fear where we're scared to look up or talk to God at all. Not that. It's, it, the fear of God's not debilitating, but it's humbling. How about others? In fact, the, the, why we're getting into this is because we're heading there in Esther. We're heading to a, a celebration of God that was carried out properly. Okay? It wasn't in defiance of his word. All right, so let's go forward, though. Uh, the king gives Esther and Mordecai full authority to write a letter reversing the previous law. So Haman's been hung. Uh, again, the laws and the Medes and the Persians, which I find uh, very intriguing, that a king could not change his own law. And uh, I think that made him think twice about making laws, perhaps. But if a king made a rash decree, he could not undo it. He could give a law that undid some of what he did, but he couldn't just say, never mind, that law is changing. Um, so he says, well, the Jews are going to be slaughtered on this day. And he couldn't send out an edict saying, never mind, you ain't touching the Jews. He had to make another law and give Mordecai the authority to do that, that would, that would act to kind of counteract that, but he couldn't take away the first law. It couldn't change. It could, not even a king uh, could alter it. So the scribes are brought in, and an offsetting decree was put into writing on June 25th, 474 B.C., which would allow eight months for the word to spread throughout the kingdom. The Pony Express was up and running again, this time carrying a much different decree from the first that had gone out. The second decree permitted the Jews to defend themselves against any aggressor and take vengeance on their enemies. You see that Esther 8, verse 11. Someone want to read that? Want to read it? Wherein the king granted the Jews, which were in every city, to gather themselves together and to stand for their life, to destroy, to slay, and to cause to perish, 
all the power of the people and province that would assault them, both little ones and women, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. Now, does that summary surprise you at all? Like, what would you expect it to say? He basically said, well, the Jews uh, can defend themselves. Um, so the Jews rejoice. Come to verse 14. So the post that rode upon mules and camels went out, being hastened and pressed on by the king's commandment. And the decree was given at Shushan the palace. And Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel, blue and white, and with great crown of gold, and with a garment of fine linen and purple in the city of Shushan, rejoiced and was glad. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day. Look at this. And many of the people of the land became Jews, for the fear of the Jews fell on them. Now let me ask you a question. If, you, if there was a decree given, let's say in Helena, for every, I don't know, whatever cross-section would hit all of us, to be slaughtered. And then another decree goes out and says, hey, good news, you're allowed to defend yourself. Would you rejoice with exuberance or would you just say, well, that's better. I'd rather not be attacked, frankly. I remember the Jews had been so ruthlessly attacked by multiple people for so long. Just having the king's backing to defend themselves was a cause for rejoicing. Just, just being allowed to bear arms to defend themselves because that, that hadn't always been the case. They were defenseless animals. So they hear this news and they think, praise the Lord. Again, it doesn't say it directly. God's not mentioned in here on purpose. It's showing his providential workings sort of behind the scenes. And so they receive the new decree with shouts of joy in times of feasting. In the capital of Shushan, Mordecai makes a public appearance as prime minister wearing his royal clothes, and it seems the entire city was pleased with the new prime minister. I'm thinking the entire city didn't like the last prime minister very much. They couldn't come out and say, hey, can we hang that guy? But they were probably pretty glad it happened, you know? Remember the proverb says, the name of the wicked shall rot, and when the wicked perish, there's rejoicing. Um, remember Herod had commanded that when he die, one of the Herods, I think it was Herod the Great. Don't quote me on that, one of the Herods. Remember he commanded that when he died? that several of the greatest men in the kingdom would be slaughtered the same day so that there would be mourning at his funeral because he knew people were going to rejoice when he died. Well, of course, he dies. And what happened? He's dead. We ain't obeying him. Forget it. And everybody cheered. He was dead still. It was probably the same thing with Haman. I think people could tell his character. We don't like this guy. So they're pleased Mordecai's in charge now. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. Listen to that combination. Light, gladness, joy, and honor. As opposed to darkness, sadness, misery, and shame. And just, just like that, it turns around. Now, the term light seems to symbolize prosperity, like Psalm 27.1. The Lord is my light and salvation and well-being. The time of celebration at the announcement served as a precursor for the Feast of Purim, which was coming up, which the Jews instituted about eight months later. 
So, what were the Jews ultimately celebrating here? Again, it doesn't directly say it. But what were they ultimately celebrating? Yeah, God's deliverance. God and His providence. Can you believe what the Lord just did? Let's, let's rejoice. So the fateful day arrives. The Jews successfully defended themselves with the assistance of government officials. And remember, God providentially, again, sends the fear of the Jews on the land. Now you have a whole bunch of Persians becoming Jews. What does that mean? That means some of the men were circumcised and became Jewish proselytes because they're so terrified of the Jews all of a sudden. And more than that, the Jews, God. Now in the twelfth month, chapter 9, verse 1, which is the month Adar, on the thirteenth day the same, when the king's commandment and his decree drew near to be put in execution, in the day the enemies of the Jews hoped to have power over them, though it was turned to the contrary, the Jews had rule over them that hated them, the Jews gathered themselves together in their cities throughout all the providence, provinces of the king Ahasuerus to lay hand on such as sought their hurt, and no man could withstand them, for the fear of them fell upon all the people. Look at verse 3. And all the rulers of the provinces and the lieutenants and the deputies and the officers of the king helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. So, people got the memo that the king did not want the Jews killed, but the anti-Semites that were in the kingdom still had full legal right from the king to kill the Jews because the king couldn't change his law. So even though they knew the king didn't want them to do it, they knew they could do it. But what a change in events. I mean, basically that list of people, who's that? That's the, that's the military and the National Guard and the police and the fire department and the FBI and the CIA. They're all defending the Jews now. Boy, that helps. <laughs> what a turnaround. From the time of the second degree went out on June 25th, 474 B.C. until the day of the battle... March 7th. The Jews had approximately eight months to prepare. The day was to be unforgettable in the history of the nation Israel. In the opening verse of chapter 9, we clearly see the providence of God. He brought about the reversal of expectations and turned tragedy into triumph. The triumph in battle was further strengthened by the fact that the government of Persia had officially supported the Jews. In fact, let me read verse 4 and 5. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame went out throughout all the provinces. For this man Mordecai waxed greater and greater. Thus the Jews smote all their enemies with the stroke of the sword and slaughter and destruction and did what they would unto those that hated them. So was their victory the result of their valiant efforts? It's kind of a flashback to the book of Joshua, isn't it? Some of the language is pretty familiar. One of you is going to put 10,000 to flight. Um, <laughs> but turn your back on God and you become a coward. It, it, you know, speaking of a principle that holds true in our life, again, the righteous are bold as a lion. The wicked flee when no man pursueth. Um, a lot of times the enemies of God have this increasing fear of who knows what. They just know something is coming. And they deny that it's God. It's interesting that... Again, in, in Revelation 6, at the end of that, it's the death of atheism. 
And here's all these men cowering in the dens and the rocks and holes in the earth, begging for rocks to fall on them, and they're saying, hide us from his face. The great day of his wrath has come, who shall be able to stand? In other words, they're admitting they had this fear all along, and now they can't deny it anymore. <laughs> there's no more climate change experts. Uh, there's no one explaining it away by tectonic plate shifting and everything else. It's the judgment of God. So the Jews are bold because God is, is with them, and they know that. So the enemies of the Jews hoped to destroy them, but the tables have been turned the other way. The statement, thus the Jews did what they would unto those that hated them, indicates the Jews were on the offensive as well as the defensive. So they weren't just defending themselves. They were going after those they knew were going to try to kill them. They were on offense. They weren't just couching in their home waiting. They were taking the fight to the enemy. They were putting the hammer down themselves. We must not underestimate the nature of the conflict between the Jews and those who hated them. And again, it's a particular hatred that can only be explained with spiritual explanations. That's the only way it can be explained. No people group, besides Bible-believing Christians, you could say, but no, if you want to restrict that to a nationality, no nationality has even come close to being hated like the Jews in world history. Not even close. There's been pockets of it here and there, but their entire history has been one of this inexplicable satanic hatred. And the only way you can explain that, I don't care what the world says, the only way you can explain that is because they represent God's covenant and the devil wants them ruined. That's the only way you can explain it. Why would it happen to them over and over and over again it's not like they've been in world dominion any time recently. They're a small people group occupying a tiny little indefensible strip of land in the Middle East. And there they've blossomed. And then they've gone from literally a barren wasteland to one of the technological superpowers in 70 years. It's unbelievable. The robotics and the, some of the technology they're leading the world in, it's unreal. There's only one way to explain that. <laughs> The providential hand of God. So the adversary is going to, the adversity is going to continue, obviously, until the end times, until God puts a stop to it. But that animosity is directed at the church and Israel, who are not the same. And, and you've heard me say it before, I think it's tragic. At least you and I. We face, if we face the world's hatred, we can say, I know God. My sins are gone. I have a home in heaven reserved for me. Most Jews can't even say that. They're wandering around looking for a Messiah that they hope will come who has already come 2,000 years ago. They won't even speak his name. They call him this man. They're feverishly working to rebuild the third temple, which the Antichrist is going to inhabit. And the veils over their eyes... And yet the world hates them strictly because their nation represents God's covenant promise. It's a sad thing. The conflict was so intense within the capital itself that one day was inadequate to deal with it. At the queen's request, the edict was extended one day. You see that in uh, chapter 9, verse 11. On that day, the number of those that were slain in Shushan the palace was brought before the king, and the queen said, unto, "The king said to Esther, the queen, the Jews have slain and destroyed five hundred men in Shushan the palace. Just in the capital city, at this point, five hundred men have been killed. 
Think of the, think of this for a minute. How much hatred had there to be against the Jews to where even after the king issued a counteracting edict, all the government officials were on the side of the Jews, the prime minister was on the side of the Jews, everybody knew that the king was on the side of the Jews, and everybody knew by now the queen was a Jew, and yet you still have in the capital city 500 people willing to die trying to kill them. Again, I ask you, how do you explain that? What other people group would, would, would that kind of insane hatred prevail? I mean, at least they cut their losses and say, now's not the time. <laughs> but they still did it. So 500 men and the first day killed. And uh, Esther said, if it please the king, verse 13, let it be granted to the Jews which are in Shushan to do tomorrow also according to the, under this day's decree and let Haman's ten sons be hanged upon the gallows. So Esther asks him, can we have another day tomorrow to do the same thing? And Haman's sons had already been killed. I just read about that uh, in the previous verses. It's there. But she asked, can we take Haman's sons and string them up 75 feet off the ground on those gallows? And can we defend ourselves tomorrow too? So that was a visible warning, sort of like the old head on a pike saying, uh, don't, don't, uh, don't overstep your boundaries here. Some people suggested the extension was granted because of suspicions that the Persians had plotted to attack the following day. So it seems like, though, the Persians had thought, well, all right, fine. Tomorrow, when the Jews can't defend themselves, we're coming back to clean house. So Esther saw that coming and said, um, can we do this again? And so they do it again. So the casualty count among the enemy arrives in the city. 75,000 had been killed in the provinces. 800 ended up dying in the two days of fighting within the capital. Think of those numbers. 75,000 were willing to still try to kill the Jews. Unbelievable. But look at, look at verses 10, 15, and 16. Look at the end. Okay, Verse 10. On the spoil laid they not their hand. Verse 15. But on the prey they laid not their hand. Verse 16, but they laid not their hands on the prey. Three times it says the Jews didn't take the possessions of their enemies. Why would it stress that? What, what is that showing? Their motive was self-defense. Nobody could say, well, those dirty Jews did it just to take our stuff. In fact, they... The king's edict said they could take it. But they understood this is a bad time to take it. We don't even want that appearance. It's interesting. I don't know if Mordecai's told them that. I don't, I don't know. But they didn't touch it. So nobody could say it, was self, it wasn't self-defense. Yes? Could there be idols among that? Oh, very likely. Yes. Definitely there would be idols. Lots of them. Um, that, would, that could have been part of it. Maybe they just thought it was defiled stuff, you know? Uh, I don't know. Maybe they'd read the story of Achan and they thought, I don't know, let's just make sure we're not like that. All right, we got to hurry. We'll get through this last part. So Purim is established, chapter 9, verse 20. Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters unto all the Jews that were in the provinces of the king of Ahasuerus, both nine far, 
to establish this among them that they should keep the 14th day of the month Adar and the 15th day of the same yearly. And the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies and the month which was turned unto them from sorrow to joy and from mourning unto a good day that they should make them days of feasting and joy and of sending portions one to another and gifts to the poor. And so this is established uh, from the word Purim comes from the word pure or P-U-R or lot. Um, the rolling of the dice, if you want to call it that. Because that's what Haman had used to determine when he was going to attack the Jews. And so they named this feast after the casting of the lot. And of course, they include giving gifts in their feast. Uh, I don't know why. Maybe it's just celebrating. Maybe it was just, maybe it was because they were thanking God for what he'd done. And so they gave something tangible to other people. But think how, how would that name help the Jews to remember the providence of God? Huh. I mean, I do you think uh, any Jew could read, for instance, what Solomon wrote about how the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. Do you think any of them could read that proverb later and go, not think of that? Again, we don't cast lots to determine the will of God today. Um, Romans 12, 1 and 2 is, is our blueprint for determining the will of God along with the rest of Scripture, but that gives the, at least the skeleton outline, okay, not rolling dice. But it helped the Jews remember even in that, even when a wicked man casts a lot to determine it, God determines when that lot falls. There is no chance. There's no accidents. I mean, you think uh, dice are rolled. Every roll of the die is controlled by sovereign hands. That's, that's staggering to think of. Staggering. So Purim serves as a, remind, a reminder of the reversal of expectations theme that dominates the account. Haman cast lots with the intention of destroying them. The Jews celebrate instead because it was the day their enemies were destroyed. So nowadays, of course, the Jews still keep it. And uh, we talked about it a little bit after class last week. Uh, the Jews take it as a literal fulfillment to the divine command to blot out the name of Amalek. And again, they take the name of uh, Haman the Agagite. It's mentioned multiple times. And they believe he was a descendant of Agag, who Saul spared uh, the Amalekite king. Again, I, I don't... Kind of dubious information surrounding that. I don't know that he was a descendant of the Amalekites. A lot of Jewish traditions become... They're just that. They're traditions. So you have to sift through some of them. But they treat it that way, that he was an Amalekite. And so one of the things they do with the Feast of Purim, they give gifts. They give gifts to the poor. They want to... Usually delivered by the hand of a child to at least two poor people so they can enjoy the day and they send gifts to each other and they read the entire book of Esther. They send fruit cakes and food baskets around and as they're reading the account of Esther, they read from the scroll and people re respond with a thunderous roar of clapping hands, stomping feet, booing, hissing, and at times the grinding noise of groggers, which is a Jewish instrument when Haman's name is read. So you can imagine it's pretty animated. They, they break out that scroll and it's just boom, feet stomping, boom! people yelling. Um, so the children get the memo that this Haman isn't the best guy in the world. <laughs> the rabbis of the Talmud taught that the Jew should get so caught up in the joy of Purim that he can no longer tell the difference between cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordecai. Um, 
and the holidays is still often celebrated with costumes and carnivals. Um, now what, again, what, what effect would these annual celebrations have on future generations? It was a, it, the one thing that Jews were very good at because God commanded it was teaching tools. I mean, you see that frequently. Uh, raise these 12 stones on the other side of Jordan so that when your children ask in time to come, what mean ye these 12 stones? Or the uh, Ebal and Gerizim, the two mountains of a blessing and cursing, same thing. Um, there were all kinds of monuments like that to remember. And, and there were those that were commanded in the law, and there were those that were added outside. The Feast of Purim was, it's considered a minor feast, which means there's no, they weren't banned from working. But it was a feast added in addition to the law that they kept. Anybody know what's the other major Jewish feast that was added after the law? It was in between the two testaments. It starts with an H. It's right around Christmas. Hanukkah. Hanukkah was uh, celebrating the, the Maccabean revolt. And they're retaking the Jewish temple and crushing Antiochus Epiphanes' armies. Quite a story. And so they began the Feast of Hanukkah. By the way, John chapter 10, Jesus is walking at the temple at the time of the Feast of Dedication. So Jesus kept, that's what Hanukkah is, Feast of Dedication. So it shows Jesus kept not just the Feast of the Law, but in, in custom, he kept the, the feast that had been added. It's kind of an interesting side note. By the way, it's, uh, I used to be really anti-Christmas. Some of you know that. When I was newly saved, you read Jeremiah and about setting up a tree and how that's an idol and, and the Roman Catholic background of it, et cetera, et cetera. And so I read a, I've recommended that article to some of you. The Celebration of Christmas Calmly Considered from a Christian Perspective is the best article I've ever seen on the subject. And years ago, it helped balance me out and give me a right perspective on it. And one of his points was this. No, the celebration of Christ, we're not commanded to celebrate it, but... There was celebration, and it's okay to add things, our own celebrations here and there. God doesn't forbid that. Um, and, and I want to encourage you families. I, again, this isn't a thou shalt. This is just, when you have special things God does in your family, it doesn't hurt to think about making that a yearly remembrance. Um, to just stop and think about, I'm to my shame... This year is the first year that we failed to observe what we call Providence Day. It's the first, the second Saturday in June. Uh, when he, was, he came home from the hospital, he had some bacterial spinal meningitis, and uh, they didn't think he was going to live. And if he lived, they thought he was going to have permanent impairment. And uh, we were there in pins and needles at the hospital in the ICU, and in six days he was home, running around. And uh, we started, we call that Providence Day because it was God's providence, and he was at Providence Hospital. And so every year, except this year, I, I'm, I'm so frustrated at myself for that in the midst of all the chaos and moving and everything. It's about a month later, I went, oh. but it's just something we've chosen to do to just stop and thank God our son's still alive, even though he does eat all of our groceries. We're thankful, we're thankful he's around. We're thankful for what God did. And so just an encouragement in that. It's a good, it's neat to hear about what God did with these people, that's good. But it's also a great blessing for kids, grandkids, to hear about what God did specifically with you. And for you to remember what God did specifically with you. So, anyways, 
They kept that feast to celebrate God. And of course, it ends with Mordecai being extolled that uh, verse 10, And the king Ahasuerus laid a tribute upon the land and upon the isles of the sea and all the acts of his power and of his might and the declaration of the greatness of Mordecai whereunto the king advanced him. Are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia for Mordecai the Jew? See how that says that? It was emphasizing Haman the Agagite. Haman the Agagite. And it ends with Mordecai the Jew was next unto king Ahasuerus. And great among the Jews, and accepted of the multitude of his brethren, seeking the wealth of his people, and speaking peace to all his seed. Uh, back in the middle of the book, if you didn't know the rest of the story, you would never guess it would end with that verse. Mordecai the Jew, seated next to King Ahasuerus as the second greatest man in the land. You'd go, no way, that guy's getting hung. And the bad guy's going to win. No. So, all right, central lessons from that book. <laughs> Again, God's providence. He's always, always working. Never stops. Never stops. All right, further questions or comments? We're a couple minutes late, but any other further thoughts? All right, I got to admit, Sunday school, I'm on the fence between two different directions starting next week. I really am. Um, we'll go one of them or a third next week. But any other thoughts or comments or anything on this amazing time in Jewish history? Really fascinating. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you that you're always in perfect control, never in a hurry, never wondering what to do, that you never have to decide anything. Lord, your thought processes are nothing like ours. We have to make decisions based on new information. We have to agonize and struggle and battle the best way to do stuff. You don't. You know flawlessly and you have known. No situations are unexpected to you. In fact, none of them are future or past or present because you dwell outside of time. Help us to have higher thoughts concerning you as we walk through our everyday life here. That cataclysmically, Lord, sometimes you intervene, but, but much of the time, Lord, you are pleased to work in quietness through so-called everyday things, although there's really no everyday things. We thank you, Lord, that we can trust you with our life, with everything we have and everything we are. In Jesus' name, amen.